0: FM. Teenagers, are you trying to figure out your teen? Do you feel lost in handling your child's teenage years? Are you exasperated? Well, Michael Riera is the author of Uncommon Sense for Parents with Teenagers. Mike understands teens and sees adolescence as a fascinating stage of life. And he's here to talk about how you can connect and parent your teen to create strong family connections. Mike, thanks for coming to my show
1: today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: So this idea that they are fascinating, they're in this fascinating stage of life, can you s- start with that? Like, why is this a fascinating stage when oh, parents...
1: It's, it's an amazing time of life if you think <laughs> of all this coming together. And if you can take, as a parent, just sort of take a step back and realize in these three, or you know, it's, let's say it's roughly 13 to 17, 13 to 18, um, they're going through enormous physical changes. They're hitting puberty. Uh, all of a sudden, they, they, their sexuality means something to them. It's not an abstract term. They're dealing with real emotions. They're going from concrete to abstract thinking in the world of possibilities. That means they're self-conscious for the first time, and that is really painful for people to learn how to use self-consciousness when you're aware of how other people are seeing you. That can be paralyzing for kids at some time. So what's I think important to understand is there's so much going on with them. It's hard to really understand any one behavior in isolation, which I think is what drives parents crazy because you do something on Monday and it works really well with your daughter. (laughs) You think that for Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the same approach will work and it doesn't because there are different things going on that are that are motivating her behavior in different ways. So what it means is we have to become much better observers as to what's going on with them. And when you do that, you start to see fascinating things happen. You know, I, I work at a school in Los Angeles, the Brentwood School, and um, I love just walking around talking to students, watching them on the field, watching them in performance. I teach a class to watch them in the classroom. And you get to see when they really are on the edge of a breakthrough. And when they have that breakthrough and you see their, their path in life actually change in those moments. And it's really uh, magical and truly a gift to be able to be around kids when this is happening.
0: It sounds like you have a, what Carol Dweck would call a growth mindset, where you don't pigeonhole people into maybe their past behaviors, but you can see that they're learning and growing and they can flourish.
1: Uh, I'd love to think that way. I mean, I think Carol Dweck's research is is brilliant about the growth mindset. And one, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a person that believes in false praise with kids. I think Mm -hmm. uh, they know the difference when they're doing something well or not. At the same time, uh, I think it's important to understand, especially as they say, abstract thinking. They're pretty critical of themselves. And I often think back to a fifth grade teacher I saw at a um, back to school night, and what she told her parents is. Look, we're going to be working on the uh, three-paragraph essay this year, five-paragraph essay. We'll be sending them home. We'll be asking for parents to edit. I want to give you a couple pointers on editing your children's papers. And she said, first of all, before you make any marks, look for that one sentence or that one-sentence fragment that is just beautiful, that is brilliant, that is insightful, that is uh, uh, rhyming, is poetic in some way, and highlight that. And she said, for every fifth grader, it will be there. And then you can go about correcting the paper, but don't make any more than three marks on the page Mm. because it's going to overwhelm them. And I think when working with teenagers, it's important to really see, you know, in their behavior, what's the part that's really, that's going to serve them well in the long run. And I'm always trying to look at teenagers with how can I influence their attitude? We know from the research, and it's unfortunate, that once they hit adolescence, peers influence their behavior more than parents and teachers that's that's the reality what they leave out of that however is that we influence their attitudes more so their behaviors will come and go they'll try different things but in the long run when they get to college and beyond the attitude is what's going to really win the day so i look at it again is that what can i do to really help the kids develop a healthy attitude knowing that they need to make some mistakes along the way but if we stay focused on the attitude instead of just the behaviors because you have to include both of them then we stand a better chance of success with them.
0: And Mike, with the focus on the attitude, it doesn't happen right away. We may not see that right away, will we?
1: Absolutely not. You know, it's the proverbial planted the seed in the ground and you just have to keep watering and have faith that at some point it's going to emerge from the ground. And it, it starts from a young age. And I think this is why every family should have a few things that are really important to you, you know, uh, what are the, the things that you emphasize? Is it honesty? Is it trust? Is it faith? Is it support? What, what are the things that are important to you? And make sure that those are a through line that go through childhood, through adolescence, and then into young adulthood. And those are the ones that really do, um, that they, they develop deep roots and they're there for the long haul. Um, but it's easy to, to not see, when you don't see them happening in adolescence, you see them trying on these different attitudes. It's very easy to overreact to kids.
0: So, you talk about that in your book, Uncommon Sense for Parents with Teenagers, about how a parent had gone out and sought out a lot of advice about what to do and what not to do, and whether it was from books or from other parents. And then they put together this list, but they had a hard time enforcing it because yeah. it didn't really ring true to them. So, what do you have to say about that?
1: Well, that, I mean, that's, the, I think, I think that's the art of parenting is that, uh, <laughs> You know, we have to figure out, first of all, do we do better with uh, acrylics and caustic, oil, water paint? Well, what's our style? And not fool ourselves in it. So let, let's use um, um, curfew as an example. Mm-hmm. Some families have a curfew. It's very clear. At ninth grade, it's this. At 10th grade, it's this. At 11th grade, and it moves up, and it's a progression. And they believe in it, and they enforce it, and it really works. Right next door to them, there might be a family that says, you know, honestly, we don't believe in curfew. We believe in having a conversation with our son before he goes out and figuring out what's the right time. So we negotiate it. And it's sometime between this and this. And that works really well for them. Now, if they read a book, if, if, if one family's struggling, the family that, say, doesn't have the curfew is struggling, something's happened, and they panic, um, and they read that you're supposed to have this, this, this rigid curfew that's really clearly demarcated, then they will go to that, but they won't really enforce it because it's not who they are. And they'll do it for two or three weeks and then it'll fall to the wayside. And they will beat themselves up. They'll give a funny message to their adolescents, which is, you know, what's going on with my parents? They're trying the latest tip. Don't they trust themselves? So I think what's important is parents, it's why I always tell people when you read books or go to lectures, hear what the people have to say, but then sift it through your own value system and your own personality. And you have to say, okay, that's a great idea. But it's not going to work for me. I I just know that it's not going to work for me. And then be more realistic.
0: Well, that's like I've been learning how to cook in the past year. And so I think about all the different recipe books out there, right? And Mm -hmm. I apply it to what's what's the reality of our life. So, you know, instead of thinking that I have to follow this one book and we're going to have all our meals out of that book, it's whether different maybe recipes and components that my family likes and that are also available at my grocery store, and that, I kind of feel like, is the metaphor of what you're talking about, is there's going to be information out there, but you need to go back to what resonates with you, what's realistic in your own personal life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I'm a writer, and I remember I, was, I couldn't write at all when people told me the way to write was to write an outline, then go back and flesh it out and fill it out. Um, I became a writer when uh, I read this book by Richard Elbow about you write, and then you, you set yourself a timer, you write something. then you go back and you rewrite it, then you rewrite it, then the fourth time you edit what you've written the three times. And what happens is you organically start to wordsmith, you organically start to get all the ideas in there, and it's a layering approach to writing that I found out subsequently, of course, lots of writers do it this way. Uh, And as a parent, we've got to figure out what's our style, and it's going to be different than other people. So if someone says you need to make outlines, but you're not an outline maker, it's not going to work for you. And I think one of the things our kids are looking to us for Is that authenticity that we're doing things that we really believe in because that allows them to see uh, the importance of looking for what you really believe in and then following it? So,
0: my husband says that teenagers are really smart and they're really aware and they really want. And the reason for this is because he really sees that they're, they're, they watch, right? They're paying attention to what's going on. They don't let us know that they're doing that. So, you know, what we may perceive as not being engaged, they can be engaged. But what what I hear you talking about is when we aren't in line with our values or living authentically, the kids see that, the teenagers see that, and they see us being out of congruence. And that's why it's really important what we do is in line with what we say. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah. They notice all the little things, the things that you never think they would pick up on. From the, you're going to the amusement park and they're, 13 years old and for 12 years old, there's a discount and you turn to them and say, hey, it's just for the next 10 minutes, you're 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I mean, those little things they pick up on and they, they see the inconsistencies. They see the big inconsistencies when we talk about uh, drinking and driving and then we're out at dinner and we have a few cocktails and get behind the wheel of the car. Okay. And, I'm not saying that we have to be perfect at all, but we do need to notice uh, when our values and our behavior are out of alignment because our teenagers are noticing every moment of that. That's why, they're so, that's why they're so defensive with us because when we try to give them feedback that's critical in any way, they see it coming a mile away. They hear uh, the voice changes. They see the complexion changes. They understand how our, our word pattern changes. They pick it up before it gets there, so they, they g- go on the offensive or they leave because they can feel it coming way before we deliver it.
0: So when you say they can feel it coming, I wonder do they not have like that left brain verbal capacity to identify and put words to it? But it's kind of like it's it's in that right brain where they have that social emotional intelligence to notice these things, the you know, the facial expressions, the, you know, the the movement of the parent walking through the house where they know, uh-oh, here it's coming, right? Is it is is it because their brain isn't developed and they don't have so because when we ask teenagers well, what do you think? What do they say? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the I think their their attitude at that point is you never get in trouble for something you didn't say. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that again, this goes to some of the abstract reasoning ability. They want a chance to get away to think about it. Mm-hmm. So you know, a very this is where when you're observant and you notice this about your kids, every time I ask them what do you think, they don't have an answer. Then. Another approach is, look, I want to know what you think about this, uh, so I want you to think about it for a while now Then after dinner we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. And give them the time to think. Another approach that works really, really well with, with people anyway, and not just teenagers, is when they don't have an answer, say, okay, what's your best guess?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Somehow it's safer when it's your best guess as opposed to what do you think. And they're much more likely to then think aloud a little bit with you. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important is that when they do this, we don't jump all over it. You know, that, um, we really think about what they said and ask them questions about it, but don't just say, well, that's a silly idea because then why should they open up to us again?
0: Because we're not creating that safe place. We're judging them. Right. So is that one of the things that disconnects parents and teens is that judgment that we have as parents?
1: Yeah. They, and they recognize it on us. And, um, you know, we have, anytime we have children, is that we have an idea of what is going to make them happy and what it's going to look like. And we have to be really careful not to push our uh, judgments onto them about what's worthwhile and what's not. I remember working with a parent and she was really upset. Her ninth grader was a terrific skateboarder and that's what he liked to do, skateboarding. And she really thought he should be a tennis player. It's like, okay he 's a gifted athlete. this is his passion. Trust it for a while. see where it goes, and all the skills he 's going to develop uh, in skateboarding because he wasn 't getting in trouble in other ways. all those are transferable in other areas and Lo and behold, he went on and he found his own sport later on, which I think was I think he became a mountain climber actually and a, another sort of risk of sport, but he could transfer all those and was very successful, founded his own nonprofit did some really extraordinary things, and met success that his mom had hoped for him, but he did it in his own way, in a, in a very different path. And I think it's important that we look at our kids and what they're doing and their choices. And there are some bad choices for sure, but to be on the sideline more, And the idea I always use is to be the consultant more than the manager, more than trying to direct them. And there are moments you have to be the manager, but more often we can be the consultant and let them make some of these mistakes along the way because they're usually short-term mistakes that they can correct and get better from. And I think sometimes we're afraid to let them have a little uh, a little uh, you know misstep along the way.
0: Okay, so Mike, you have to explain that manager consulting cuz that's the most brilliant thing. And when you when I first heard you talk about that, I've told everybody it is spot <laughs> on and I want the listeners here to have this cuz if they walk away with anything and can walk away with this, I think it can help parents. So can you explain that? Yeah, I'm happy to,
1: and thanks. It it does seem to be one that resonates with people, because the idea is that when your children are born, your child is born, you're the manager of their life. You organize their life. Um, They like you in this role. I mean, when they're an infant, they they can't survive without us being the manager. When they go to kindergarten and first grade, you visit the classroom. They love you in that capacity. They want you to read stories. They want you to drive on field trips. Anywhere you go, they want to bring their friends with you. They show you off it's wonderful. It's a great feeling. They look to us for advice. It's fabulous. And then they hit adolescence. And at some point during adolescence, uh, pretty unceremoniously and somewhat offensively, they fire us as the manager of their life. And we're sort of standing on the sidelines saying, wait a minute, look at the future. There's academics, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's cars, there's sex, there's college, there's all these big things. Now you need me as manager more than ever. And now my advice is even better than before. So what can often end up happening is parents do one of two things. Either they essentially litigate for wrongful termination for the next three years and try to get back to the manager role. And they're, they're getting into a power struggle constantly with their kids. And it's not about the trash anymore. It's about who, who can force the other person to take the trash out. And it becomes a constant power struggle. Or parents completely give up. And they say, okay, well, you know. You're on your own. Um, Last one in bed at night, you make sure the door's locked. The first one up, let the dog out, and good luck. And they have relatively abandoned their kids. So parents tend to fall into one of those two categories. And the first one feeling like I've got to do something, I'm going to exercise my energy, even if we come to blows with each other, we can go to therapy later and we'll work it out. And the other side saying, well, you know, they say they don't need me, so um, they'll be okay. They'll figure it out on their own. And I think there's a middle ground, which is you get hired as that, you get fired as that face-to-face manager, and now you shift more to their side to become the consultant. And you begin to think like a consultant. You think strategically. So you want to know what's going on with your teenager. You know when he comes home after school, you're not going to have much success. But you know late at night, if you wander into his room and sort of just hang out for a little bit, he's much more likely to talk. You know that in a long car ride, he's probably going to talk more than if he's sitting across from you at the dinner table, that you begin to think, you know, what are the best moments to have some of these conversations? And it's about letting the kids make some mistakes, and there you're on the sidelines to help pick them up, dust them off, and get them back in the game metaphorically. So it takes a lot of the power out of it, and it helps us as parents think much more in terms of influence than control, because the reality is we have a lot of influence. We don't have nearly as much control as we'd like to think we have.
0: Can you say that about how we have a lot of influence? How is that?
1: Um, and I see it all the time in working in schools is that um, what, you know, I, we have at, at school at Brentwood a system of prefects, five prefects that are elected by the student body, seniors that are sort of the leaders of the school for the year, in the upcoming year. And I interview all of them after they're elected to talk to them just to get to know them a little bit. Every student, when I ask them what matters and uh, what their values are and where they came from, they all talk about their families. And I sit here and I go, oh, I wish I could get a tape recording because I know the kids' <laughs> parents and they wouldn't believe it that this is what's coming out of their mouths. And they talk about their family and their parents, what they've done, and they remember the, the lessons from five years old and nine years old and fourteen years old and stuff. And then I ask, sometimes I'll ask them, uh, "Would your parents be surprised to hear this?" And most of them say. Uh, yeah, you're not going to tell them, are you? Because the lessons have gone in, but as parents, we're not aware of it. And, And I see it all the time that family matters so, so much to these kids. At the same time, developmentally, they're getting ready to leave high school, to either go into the working world, to go to college, to essentially get out on their own in some way. So they're preparing for that. And that's where their energy is going. So in a weird, weird way, them taking us for granted is a backhanded compliment. It's a way of saying we've done a good job because now they can focus on what's in the future for them and getting ready for that.
0: Wow, so I hope the parents that are listening to this can really absorb that because in the day to day there are a lot of times as parents, they don't feel that they are really getting, having any influence, don't they?
1: right well this is I, this is it's funny. I talked to some grandparents the other day at a talk here at school, and it's the power of having grandparents or someone from a generation uh, above us as parents know, have a good relationship with our kids because as parents, we're taking the short view on everything. Did you do your algebra homework? Did you finish your assignment? Is your uniform washed for the game tomorrow? And that's our, you know, we're focused on those little things. The grandparents have the long view, the view that says, hey, you're really creative. You're working hard. That's great. Yeah, you got to see in math. It's no big deal. Your mom didn't do well in math anyway. <laughs> I love the way you're working, though. I love, Let me see another one of your paintings. So they, because they're not in the day-to-day and they're not as concerned about the, the, the next, whether it's Algebra 2 or Algebra 2A, they um, really give the kids th- the space to have the long view, and they tend to see them more as... Uh, I think they get a a more realistic view of the trajectory of the kids than we do as parents sometimes. Mm -hmm. And when the kids have relationships with these uh, grandparents and this other generation, uh, it really helps them enormously. And, And they get a different kind of feedback that's basically, you're okay, just keep working the way you are, it'll work out, don't worry. It's hard for parents to say because they say, if I say that, then maybe he'll stop working so hard in math.
0: Yeah, because we feel like we have to be this dictator, right, if our kids are gonna turn out okay or do right. well.
1: We really we really don't have to. We do need to keep them pointed in the right direction. Um, but they also need it's hard not to that and get into that overmanaging of the kids. Which is why if you're the consultant it helps stand on the side. So
0: my daughter is in eighth grade and I've have a blended family. My husband's kids are now twenty-seven and twenty-four. So I raised them since they were uh four and six. Um, So I'm kind of on my second range, uh, you know, parenting group of children. And so I've learned a lot. Plus I've coached swimmers for a long time. So I've had that kind of hindsight of seeing the different levels, but it still Mm -hmm. takes a lot of practice to actually implement this stuff. And when my daughter was in seventh grade, you know, we have a pretty hard driving work ethic in our family. That's a family value of ours. And in seventh grade, you know, I've always you always hear all the stories about how kids in our in our district they go into junior high in seventh grade about how hard it is. And my daughter was kind of flowing through and she didn't really have homework. And I I was kind of, well, what's going on? And it took me so much. I, I had to keep pulling myself back and just saying, well, just trust it. There'll be a progress report. Just trust it. There'll be a progress report. And then we can reevaluate. Right. But I had to calm myself down to not you know, get in her business about it. And then the other side was, I did, I was kind of on her like, well, you need to be doing more because that's what we do, right? We're we're overachievers and we work really hard. And and then I thought, if my kid is getting all her stuff done and is engaged and not wasting time at school and, you know, really wanting to get stuff done and doing good work, who am I to say that she can't have downtime when she comes home? You know, she's managing her day better than I can manage my day, you know, because she's being efficient. Sometimes I'll drift off into things. So mm-hmm. who am I to say this? But Mike, I have to tell you, <laughs> I had to take a lot of deep breaths to give her that space to let her do well, that.
1: It's, and it's, part of this is knowing yourself and knowing your child that some kids, there's some kids that come home and they want to get right to their homework. Uh, the other 98% of kids um, need a break. And they're going to take the break whether they get it or not. And I've seen fa- parents sort of insist they do the homework or some sort of work. And the kids just space out because we underestimate how much work it is the, at school. As they walk around going from class to class, typically a class is 50 minutes. And I mean, think if your job was um, one 50-minute period you're doing math the next 50 minute period, you're making an art project. The next 50 minute period, you're writing an essay. The next 50 minute period, you're learning about history. Then you're going to lunch, which is a, a whole social world into itself. And where are you going to sit? Who are you going to sit with? And in seventh grade, that's, I mean, that's the big time is, is lunchtime, what's happening then. That's the most stressful time of the day for kids. Then you're back in the classroom doing this, doing this again. Then you're coming home, and your parents are asking, how was your day? And the honest response from a teenager should be, I don't have any idea. I've been living it. You know, give me an hour. Let me go have a break. And the, the break for them is usually some sort of, um, you know, we talk about mindfulness, but for them, it's a kind of mindlessness that they text back and forth. And there's no content on the text other than just to see if Rachel's returning my text or if Sarah's got home yet. They're just reconnecting to their relationships Or they're playing a video game for a while just as a way of just relaxing and and sort of dumping. I think the challenge comes in is um, recognizing in your kids, do they have the internal mechanism that after an hour or so of that, they can turn it off and get to their work? Mm -hmm. Or are they the kind of kid that needs help um, making the shift from, okay, relaxing, now going on to something else and getting back to their work? Most kids need some assistance. And most kids can do it some days, but not every day. And sometimes we end up holding it against them that, that you know, Monday and Tuesday you were able to do it. So I'd let you all alone on Wednesday and, and you never got to your work. It's because no, none of us ever hit hundred percent on every day. We're not a hundred percent efficiency. Some days we're at 90 something, some days we're at 60 something. And we just want to make sure we don't have a disaster during those days. So as parents, we want to think through, with your child. So with the seventh grader, it might be, uh, I, I want you to have a break or I want you to get to your work. Do you need reminders? Okay. Every one of them will say, no, I don't say, okay, well, we'll give it a couple of days and try. And then sure enough, they'll need a reminder and then say, can we do this another way? Because I really don't like coming into your room and having to say, get to your homework. What's another way we can do this where I don't have to be the bad guy. And they will get creative. They'll talk about, um, Setting up, set, like remember when they were young, often someone would give us advice when they're four or five years old to uh, get an egg timer mm-hmm. and said, hey, "We're going to do this as long as the egg timer when it rings, then we're going to go do chores or we're going to go do something." You can do a variation of that with a seventh grader and help put them in the position where they can brainstorm with you, and, and they will come up with ideas because they don't want you coming in and nagging them all the time. And at the same time, they know that sometimes they need reminders to get off to get what stop what they're doing, and get back to work. So it's again, it's an opportunity to tap into their creativity because at this age, they are wonderfully creative.
0: And so one of the things is that I hear you saying is we need to pay attention to our kids and be this observer and figure out, okay... Maybe some days they're capable of doing this, but then maybe some days later in the week they're not. And so it's about us being engaged and aware of what's going on instead of saying, oh, well, my child is self-reliant, so they should be able to have it together all the time.
1: Right. Right. It's better to say they're self-reliant today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe not tomorrow. I mean, this is why one of the things we do in our family that, are, that works for us is that we have a workspace where we all work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anytime anyone's in that space, you know, my wife might be painting something, I might be writing, my kids might be doing their homework, but they they can look up when they get distracted and see, oh, the others here are working. Uh, it creates an environment. And also, if they have a question, they can ask someone the question. Mm-hmm. And then, periodically, someone will watch a silly YouTube because they're taking a break and say, hey, take a look at this. And we all have a laugh together and then, then go back to our work. But it, it creates a... Um, And it doesn't work like this every night, but even a one night a week where you get something like that, the interaction that I know they're watching us to see how we stay focused. And I know they're watching us to see that we take breaks and and can relax at the same time.
0: Interesting. So what do our teens really want? Because we're told as parents, right, we need to be engaged. We need to ask them from when they come home from school, how was their day so we can connect with them. But I'm hearing from you that they may need space when they come home from school. They may not know right then. So what do our kids really want?
1: Well, I think, you know, they want different things. I think the hardest thing is they want different things at different times. When they come home from school, um, they love for somebody to be there who doesn't pester them. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, steer them towards the refrigerator. Don't really ask about their day. Just have the general, how is your day? You'll get nothing more than a grunt or something like this or a fine. Then encourage them to go to their room and relax for a while, whatever it is for them. And then before they, they go into the room, always plant the seed. You know, when we have dinner in a half hour, or an hour, maybe we can get caught up on one another's day. And that dinner becomes a time when you just, it's the mundane that goes back and forth. And, um, I think that is a bridge that we create for communication with our kids, and, and they want to be able to communicate with us. I think we also look for other ways we can keep the communication going. That sometimes it's a. I'm a big believer in little notes that we write our kids. That could be as simple as walking by your room, heard you laughing last night. Just love the sound of your laughter. They're not lectures. They're just they're just little notes to keep the connection there. I think the other thing that teenagers like that that most of us miss is they like when we ask them big questions. You know, the questions that that really linger, because E.E. Um, e. Cummings said there's always a more beautiful answer to a more beautiful question. And teenagers, I find the ones that you can sort of ask the question, they'll give you that half stare, they'll walk away, and then a couple days later they'll come back to it on their own. And, you know, the questions that are so, you know, What's meaningful to you with your in your friends? What, what really matters with you? Or what teacher you know? What teacher brings out the best in you? And how does he or she do that? Um, the questions that just get them to go internal a little bit, and those questions, especially late at night or in car rides, you
0: ask these great questions, or we have told us to ask these great questions, and then the time of the day becomes really critical. I find in my family when my daughter's coming home from swim practice, that is. That, like, my husband and I both want to drive her home because in that car at home <laughs> after practice, she just has everything in the world to tell us. Right. But it, when she comes yep. in the door, it actually works perfectly because she comes in, I say hello, and she comes usually comes to find me. I say hello, and then I usually head out the door to go coach swimming, which works perfectly because then she gets to have some alone time and decompress yep. without me being all in her business. Like, for me, I think having some physical structure to help with giving her space is definitely helped in our in our families um giving her the space that she needs as a teen and so this this is all really helpful i think as for parents um what are other things that teenagers want from us as parents
1: well they i mean they want our support and they want us to even though they might say otherwise they want us to show up you know at our games at our performances um and I think more than anything, and it's a, it's a hard one to describe. They just want us to believe in them, mm-hmm. because if we can remember adolescence, and the the research is actually that we don't remember adolescence all that well, though we think we we might. Um, that there's a lot of doubts, and there's a lot of self questioning. You know, this self consciousness that comes from abstract thinking that we touched on at the beginning is really overwhelming when you're starting to question everything you do, and the look on somebody's face. Does that mean They think less of me. Does that mean they just had something in their eye? Does it mean they were looking beyond me? They have to hypothesize and and come up with all of different possible meanings and to understand this is an exhausting process for them. So what they need more than anything are parents who really believe in them and are clear, the clear communication about, you know, what your expectations are, and they feel like, um, you know, what I always say about great teachers, and I think it's the same true for parents, is that the, the hallmark of great teachers is, is pretty simple when you get down to it. Is the first is that they have high expectations of their students. And second, that they have a clear path for getting there and that they are going to support the students, really support the students in getting there, and at the same time they're going to hold the high expectations. Um, knowing that not all, every student's going to get there, but they will never get there unless they hold, they hold that spot and then encourage them along the way. And I think it's the same for parents. The difficult part is, and once they hit adolescence, as it when they're nine and ten years old, you can walk next to them to support them to get there. When they hit adolescence, the support is going to come from other places. And and we're going to be there for them, but they're probably not going to access us access us as much as they did when they were younger. So can
0: you say more about this clear path? What does that look like from a parent's perspective?
1: Well, I think it's that you know what Again, whatever the values are that are important. I love the work of Carol Dweck. So I'm always talking to my kids and the students here is that what's most important is you work hard. And this means that a lot of things are going to come up in order to stay working hard on things. And the first thing that you'll encounter is at some point, whatever you're doing is, is going to get confusing. And as difficult as it sounds, our goal is to help you develop a healthy relationship to confusion, which means you don't panic. You don't doubt yourself, you don't quit, you don't come up with excuses. Rather, we develop some strategies that you can use to get through confusion. It could be that you need a break, you need some exercise. It could be that you need to change subjects for a while. It could be that you need to talk to somebody about the problem and talk it out. It could be that you just need to go and write for a while about it and see if you can write your way through it. It could be that um, you go online and find uh, some, someone that can teach you something about it with some video from Khan Academy or something like this. Because once you can learn to handle confusion and get through it, on the other side, that's a breakthrough, that's an insight, that's a new skill that you've managed. And our goal is really to help you learn how to work hard to get the things that you want. For me, one of the clearest examples of this is when kids learn to play a musical instrument. Because the lesson is predicated on practicing something that they've learned and getting proficient at it, and introducing something that's new difficult and confusing and each week a good music student has the experience of having to go through confusion week after week to get to the other side and eventually get profi- prof- proficiency and as soon as they get that there's another confusion they have to deal with so musicians you see that have been serious about it are not afraid of confusion They're, oh this is just part of the learning curve and you move forward because many kids naively think that um, if you're smart you automatically get it and you don't get confused so for parents, part of the clear path is, you know, let's figure out, figure out what you want and how you're going to get there and what you're going to do along the way because you're going to get confused and how can we help you and where, where are you going to get your support rather than just say, that's, that's the goal, go for it, don't let anything stop you. That's a great adage, but it doesn't describe the landscape that you're going to encounter along the way. And I think the more we can help them understand that landscape, that gives them more clarity and it becomes more realistic. Oh, I am going to go two steps forward and one step back. And that's okay. It doesn't mean when I take a step back, it's time to quit. It means it's time to sort of regroup and go forward again and get two more steps forward.
0: So part of that path, it sounds like, is developing resiliency.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, well, if if you follow that idea, resiliency is an automatic byproduct. Once kids learn how to develop, deal with confusion, resiliency, grit, all of that is in place there because that's the only way they can get through it.
0: And the other thing that came to mind is that this, this clear path isn't so much about the outcome goal, but it's about focusing on the process goals, the process. Right. And then you get that the outcomes evolve, just like what you shared earlier about the boy who is a skateboarder and mom wanted him to be successful and he became very successful
1: in mountain, was it mountain climbing? Right. Yep. And it's, Part of this is, you know, when you listen to great coaches talk, they will tell you, and they talk about competition, we never talk about winning. We talk about what we're going to do, how we're going to play the game, and our character and our values. And that's true, yet it's not quite true because athletes come together or debaters come together with the idea that they want to win. And without that, they're not going to be motivated to do some of the difficult things that come. I agree if a coach is always talking about winning – and not talking about themselves and the the habits of mind and the habits of body, then they're probably not going to win. Yet anyone, um, in order to win, in order to to develop those characteristics, winning has to be one of the things that they're aiming for, which is why parents and, and teachers, I think it's important that we set high expectations. And the expectations may be, um, we can get into grades and maybe that's part of it, but let's really focus on how hard you work, that I want to make sure you're working your hardest in each of these classes and that we know the grades will take care of themselves. And for the most part, they will. Sometimes you have to say to a kid who's very literal, well, what does that mean? Is a B okay? Is a C okay? Is it A okay? What, what should I get? And you say, look, you're capable, we think, of getting a B plus or an A minus. So let's let's shoot for that, but let's not make that the end goal. Let's really look at how you work along the way, and I bet you'll surprise yourself at the end. So we can't completely devoid ourselves of the outcome, and we can acknowledge it, but then get back to the process of what it takes to get there. Okay.
0: No, that's really helpful. And when you originally said a clear path, I thought about you know, how it's like, oh, I've got to get my kid into X college, and so this is the clear path. That's not what you're talking about.
1: It's No. It, it, I don't know. There's a recent Gallup poll that came <laughs> out. They, they polled 30,000 college graduates in fifth, all 50 states. And what they found out, which is just, I think we all knew this intuitively, is in ter- terms of happiness as an adult, it doesn't matter where you go to college. Mm-hmm. What seemed to matter the most was that they had connections, supportive connections with professors, and that they were engaged in long-term uh, projects. And that can happen in any school in, in the country, and I think, what, I think there's information there for us as parents, too. They need supportive relationships with us as their parents, and they also the long-term projects are their ongoing education and, and that learning how to work hard.
0: So it, it, this idea is is that it's about being connected and having this ability to belong and being in an environment that is truthful and supportive, right? Where we're not just telling right. them, we're we're not pandering to them or blowing smoke, but we're being really honest. And then, but we also recognize what their potential could be.
1: Yeah, and I, I though I do I, I try to keep, keep away from that word potential. Okay, why? And, because kids hear kids hear that as they're just they're not measuring up. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, it's a sort of like a dirty word. It's like the word inappropriate. It, it doesn't mean anything to them. So it, it's better to, I think, just focus on working hard and let, letting that outcome come and just say, you know, I, I know you're capable of doing this. You're capable of doing more. And I think we also have to have sort of win stories that are at our disposal. Remember when you were playing Little League and you didn't think you could pitch and you surprised yourself and you actually became a pretty good pitcher in Little League. Times when they doubted themselves and then surprised themselves.
0: To develop that resiliency, to realize that there is going to be confusion. You're going to fall down. There's the two steps forward, one step back.
1: And I think, you know, a couple things here with parents is one, our goal is not to be their friends. Our kids have plenty of friends. They only have two parents and um, they need us as a parent to be there as a parent. And we need to know in adolescence, they're going to move away from us and their job is not to be friends with us, and our job is not to be friends with them. It's to be the parent. I believe it's more the consultant parent than the management parent. And then what happens when they go to college and beyond, they come back to us, and we, we develop a real, it's still the parent-child relationship, but there's a lot more friendship involved in it. Whereas if we try to be the friend when they're an adolescent, uh, they're not going to respect us when they get older, and we're going to have a lot of work to do to get that relationship back. This is why... One of the things, you know, uh, I talk to parents a lot about developing integrity in kids is that when they do things wrong, when they make mistakes, you know, we all focus on, you know, what are the consequences? How do we teach them from this experience? And, and those are all laudable and need to be there. Uh, I don't want to get into all the details of that. And one of the things that's missing is the most important thing, which is to turn to kids and say that they, they came in late for curfew. They cheated on a test. Was there a part of you that knew you, knew you shouldn't do this, that said bad idea? Most kids, after they've been caught, will say, well, yeah, there, there was a tiny part that, that said not to do this. Now we get this beautiful moment. It's true consultant moment because we're coming around to the side of them metaphorically and saying, so there was a part of you that knew not to do this. What stopped you from listening to yourself? Ooh. And most people give you a confused look like, what do you mean? There was a part of you that said, don't cheat. Or there's a part of you that said, get home or call home, but you didn't listen to yourself, what stopped you? This is a quintessential question that lingers because they really don't have the answer to it. And you can give them a day or so to think about it. They'll come up with little pieces. The bottom line we want to reinforce with them is, look, anytime that voice goes off and you hear that voice, pay attention to it. You know a lot more than you realize sometimes. and Pay attention to this part of you because it'll never steer you wrong. What this does is it tunes the kids into instead of picking apart all the rules that we have in our house and in school and in society, they now have to fall back on their own sense of right and wrong. And most kids are pretty clear on the difference between right and wrong and know what to do. This also appeals, I think at this age, adolescents, there's a healthy narcissism that lives in them. And the reality is you ask this question to a narcissist it makes them more interesting to themselves. And if you can do that, you've got a good relationship with them. <laughs> <laughs> they all of a sudden become the most fascinating person in the world.
0: <laughs> That's how you get them engaged,
1: right? <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> that is great. I love that question. What stopped you from listening to yourself? Yep. Wow.
1: Powerful. And we I watched so many people walk right up to it, but then we forget to ask we forget to ask that question. Well and and go ahead
0: what a great thing is now because you're right we are teaching our kids to listen to their inner voice right we are mm-hmm. teaching them instead of the messages outside or the other people's values but to to start to connect to them and that is so that becomes so empowering as they become an adult where they can listen to themselves
1: yep and, and they have to learn to make decisions that as they get older more and more decisions are great decisions it's not 90% right it's 52% sure it's the right decision And they really have to have uh, sort of a relationship to their inner values and what's what's important to them.
0: Wow. Well, Mike, this has been great talking with you. And as we wrap up, what are a couple of takeaways for parents who want to practice cultivating a connected relationship with their teen now and also to develop for the future like you talk about, to have that that connection and that friendship when they're both adults?
1: I think, um, you know, really try to observe more. I just watch and notice what's going on with them. And um, the more you can empathize with them, the better. And it doesn't have to be an active, oh, that's so hard, as much as just a quiet empathy to try to understand their day-to-day experience. I think we want to show up as much as we can to games, to performances, that they see that we're there, not only in our words, but in our actions as well. And I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, in laughter with kids that... Um, Let them introduce you to what's funny to them, uh, the latest YouTube or whatever, whatever show they're watching, and plop down on the sofa next to them and watch one of the shows and learn to laugh with them. Crack the joke periodically because laughter changes everything. We know that physiologically it changes what's going on in our body and opens us up in different ways. And I think when we learn to laugh as a family, especially with our teenagers, it can really solve a lot of other problems. And I think the final thing I would say is, you know, when we have conversations like this, or you read a book or hear a speaker, it all sounds pretty easy. Yet in the reality, you know, raising a child is so much more emotional than it is intellectual. And I, I really think if you, um, when something happens and you later that night, you're in your in your room thinking about what happened and how you could have done better, First is forgive yourself, and then the next day try something different because for better or worse, when, you, when something happens on Tuesday that, it does, that doesn't work, it's going to come back around on Thursday, and you have another shot at it. And we just want to our, have, our, have our kids see us constantly trying to improve.
0: Mike, thank you. Those are great takeaways. Thanks for being on the show today.
1: You're more than welcome. Uh, thanks. It was, it was a lot of fun.
0: Wow. How many of you are inspired... And how many of you are beating yourself up right now because that's not the way you've been parenting your teen? Right? We know that nothing great comes from a place when we beat ourselves up. It's about being compassionate. We're going to make mistakes. Here we have this great expert, Dr. Mike Riera, who gave us his amazing tips and insights into teenagers. And he's one of two people that I know that really think teenagers are brilliant. And from their eyes, I hope that you can see the brilliance amongst our moody teens, right? They, they test us. They, gosh, do they? are they so good at triggering our buttons and knowing, right, just the thing to do or say that really just bothers us. And I know from my own experience, a lot of times my own stuff comes up because of my own uncertainty, right? What's going to happen? And I also know that when I go into that uncertain place, I'm coming from this place of fear. And when I'm in this place of fear, nothing good happens. So just to remember that teens are brilliant. They are really critical of themselves. Holy moly, never thought of teens that way. Thank goodness for Mike's you know perspective so that we could see teens through his eyes because he is definitely a conduit for teens for us. And to realize that they're critical on themselves. And that makes me think about uh, Dr. Brené Brown, who's been on the show several times. And one of the first times that I interviewed her, We were supposed to talk about perfection and instead we wound up talking about, um, we got stuck on this one part that I was really troubled with and it was, according to her research, our ability to love others is directly correlated to our ability to love ourselves. And so our kids may be critical of themselves. How are we role modeling that for them, right? And what I have found to be effective is that when I can go and do my own work, so if it's criticism that I see my child going through, themselves, self-criticism, how can I practice self-compassion? Because I do know from my own raising a family that it's not what I say, but it's what I do, that they follow and implement, right? So that idea that going back to Dr. Brene Brown of your ability to love others is directly correlated to your ability to love yourself. And I, I, that has got to tie up with Dr. Mike Riera's, you know, that teens are critical in themselves. They're trying to figure out a whole lot of stuff. There's cultural beliefs, there's society, there's magazines, there's friends, there's Instagram, there's, you know, all these different social media, there's parental expectations. And think about it, there's a lot of fear in these teen years because everybody's on this race to nowhere, right? So if we can hold that space for them, and he talks about using empathy right? How can we use empathy and hold that space? The word I like to use is compassion. You know, how can you be compassionate? How can you hold that space? And so these are things to think about. They're not to beat ourselves up, right? Because that becomes ineffective. And he said, the other thing that he said that I thought was so important was that teens need supportive relationships with us as their parents. Right. So often, I don't know about your house, but in my house, you know, we're busy, we're trying to get things done. There's the outside pressures, you know, of what are the expectations for my child if she's going to be successful. And you, it's easy to get caught up in that. Even somebody like me who knows better, especially like in the sport of swimming, where I don't, you know, rarely do I come from a place of fear or not enough. But there are times that I have been triggered by this outside influence or by what somebody has said or by this upcoming, you know, all star team. But knowing that coming from a place of fear will not be effective as a parenting technique, right? It's coming from that place of love, which then brings up uncertainty, but it's about me learning how to embrace that uncertainty. So supportive relationships with our children. You know, I I invite you to think about how you can provide support for your teen. And one of the things I always talk with my clients about a lot is that compassionate people have boundaries. So it doesn't mean that we become their best friends because, right, Mike said, look, your kids already have friends. They only have two parents. And that's where I think about compassionate people have boundaries. What are the boundaries that are really important? You know, he uses the word attitudes. I use the word values. What are your family values? And, and how, do you, how do you reinforce that compassionately? I'd love to know how you do it. Send me an email, right? This is something that I work on and I practice all the time. And sometimes I do it well. And sometimes, man, I am a disaster. So those are things to think about. How can you provide supportive relationships, supportive space for your family, for your teens? The thing that I, the vision that I have is kind of our home is a nest. And it's a nest that while they're here, I want them to be able to be comfortable living in. And when they leave, I want them to come back and visit. And so, for me, the visual that I always have is is this nest, and this nest is a safe place. It's not always, you know, uh, safe in the terms of there. You know, I could get upset; they could get upset. But how can we create that emotional safe place? How can we create that of safety and practice? And when I talk about safety, I mean emotional safety. Right where they feel like they can be who they really are inside of our home instead of being who they need to be out at school or on the teams or with their friends. The other point that he talked about that I thought was so important was to forgive yourself, right? Because as parents, we make mistakes. And as Mike said, raising a child is so much more emotional than intellectual. Forgive yourself, then try again. And I, and I do believe that this is a practice. I know from my personal experience that parenting has been one of the best forms of personal development in my own life. My kids have taught me so much. It's been hard. There's been tremendous struggle. There's been joy. I've learned how to love Right, learn how to set boundaries instead of being a martyr or instead of having boundaries because I had jet fuel packed on my back and went crazy with the boundaries, Right, and ha- how to practice this. So I really invite you to think about how can you practice. Practice is, I, for me, it's the essence, quiz essential word. It is so important to, to remind myself every day it's a practice because that helps me let go of perfection. And just the other day I was reading something about how shame – and perfection go hand in hand, right? So how can we practice? And if we practice, then we're practicing that growth mindset of, hey, what can I learn from this? You know, how can I cultivate a relationship with my child? Through the years, I've talked to so many different kinds of parenting experts, whether it's for technology or just all sorts of different ones. And I remember years ago, I talked to a woman, we were talking about technology and she had said, it's about, it's like planting a garden. You keep planting the seeds You're not quite sure which ones are going to come out and sprout, right? So those of us who get stuck into this transactional mindset, right? We're so used to going to Starbucks or your favorite coffee shop, putting your order in, giving the money and getting exactly that and knowing what to expect. Parenting is not at all like that, especially when it comes with the teen. We don't really know what their mood's going to be like. We don't really know what happened in their day. And so when they come walking in the door, it's so not transactional. You know how often do you come home and think that life's going to be smooth and your teenagers are erupting or you come home and thinking your teenager's going to erupt and your teenager's like so happy to see you and is jumping off the ground and was you know wants to engage and connect. <laughs> Sometimes I just feel like I have speed wobble in my head. So these are things to think about and you know I invite you to to come from this place of compassion compassion for yourself. You know, and if if Brene's principles about loving yourself is directly correlated, loving others is directly correlated to your ability to love yourself, I would imagine that this idea of empathy, providing empathy or compassion for your child is the same thing. Provide that space for yourself so that you can provide it for them, right? They want to be a part of our lives. And a good friend of mine and a mentor, um, Michelle Woodward, had said to me years ago, what is the relationship you want to have when your child's 25? What is the relationship you want to have when your child's 40? You know, and these are things to think about. And it brings me back to something that Mike said earlier, you know, about kind of knowing where it is that you want to go. It's not a roadmap. It's not a blueprint. But when you kind of have like, what is my intention? Is this something I want to be connected, you know, in 10 or 20 years, right? Or is this something that they need to do exactly as they say? And then at a certain age, we're done and that I've taken care of part of that job. You know, how is it that you want to parent? What is the kind of relationship that you want to cultivate? And there's no right or wrong. You know, it's about knowing what is within your value system. So thanks so much for listening today. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at HowSheReallyDoesIt.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself if that is possible for them. What is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com and thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming She is drifting, never been so wild